Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chance to reflect upon the faith of Jesus. We ask now that you would bless our time, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would drive all distractions from this room. I pray that you would enable us to focus and to fully receive the gift that you want to give us and what we're going to cover. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So what we're about to cover is what I, a series of events in Jesus' life that I think most specifically and clearly reveal what Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12 refers to as the faith of Jesus. Um, we are not going to go into those who keep the commandments of God. Um, if I was doing a standalone presentation on the Three Angels' Messages, I would do that. But because that's one of the Bible studies we're going to teach you later, I didn't want to double dip. So we made the choice not to do that. Um, but it does technically belong before this presentation, just so you know. Um, on Audioverse, there's one called The Law, uh, The Grace of Christ in the New Covenant, I think is what it's called. Uh, if you want to hear it and find that presentation that deals with that stuff, um, if you're hearing this presentation later. All right. So, um, I believe that this is literally the most powerful and life-changing story that has ever been told. Uh, and I say that because I, on July 5th, 2014, heard someone tell this story uh, in a very similar fashion, and my life has never been the same. I will never forget that day for the rest of my life. Someone gave the most simple gospel presentation I had ever heard, and all they did was just tell the story. It wasn't this Mel Gibson bloodbath or this waxing eloquent philosophical treatise. It was just the simple telling of the story. There wasn't a dry eye in the house, and I made a vow that day, July 5th, 2014, that I will never commit the sin of not preaching this ever again, because it's that important. And then once you come to realize how this fits into the third angel's message, it's just even more important. So, um, so I would encourage each of you to be praying that God would make this story come alive to you in a way that it never has. Uh, and to let it transform you. So we're drawing this from largely Isaiah 53, Psalm 18, Psalm 22, the last part of Psalm Isaiah 52, the Desire of Ages chapters, Gethsemane, Calvary, and it is finished. And the second volume of the testimony is chapter 29. It's called The Sufferings of Christ. The content that we'll be covering today is largely from that, okay, largely from these sources. And so, because um, I'm not going to take the time to tell you where they all come from as we're walking through the story. We're told this in the 1888 materials. Remember, the 1888 materials are what Ellen White wrote <clears throat> in letters to other people about the events and the circumstances surrounding the 1888 General Conference with Jones and Wagner. And so she says, the want in the religious experience is the, so what's lacking, what's most needed in the religious experience is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospel. So she's very clear on this. What is missing and what is most needed in the religious experience of all is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as it's presented in the gospel. Told in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, this is what he came here for, to seek and to save that which was lost, which implies some things. Right? And again, this is why you can't just look at Scripture and read it and ignore it. What's being implied here? What's being said here? 
And when you wrestle through texts, you find stuff that's been there the whole time. It's been lost in plain sight. You know, Bogdan, you were asking, like, you know, where, is this some, like, new book or something? Like, where is this coming from? It comes from wrestling with the text and seeing what does this actually mean as opposed to just the math on the surface of Revelation 14, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. What are the root issues that it's addressing and where can we fill in those, those topics to understand what, it's, what's, what it means? So this implies some things. What Jesus says in Matthew, or Luke 19, and verse 10, it implies that he saw value in what he's seeking. You don't go looking for something that you don't want, right? So he sees value in the thing that he's seeking, and it also implies that he's taking the initiative to bring about the solution, even though we are in a horrible condition. He is intentionally doing the work of seeking and saving the lost. Who's making the first move? He is, which is important. Now, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Okay? Jesus didn't just write a check for the price of sin. It wasn't like, oh, okay, so uh, humanity has blown it, and, uh, you know, so they owe eight thousand metrics of forgiveness or something, right? And so humanity, hey, and do you guys even know how to use checks? Do you even know what a check is? All right. All right, Jesus didn't just write a check for the price of sin. That's not what happened here. This is not just this legal exercise that, oh, you owe this much. Let me write a check for that exact amount. And he literally became sin. Jesus literally became the embodiment of your sin. And we talked about this in our presentation on shame and guilt in one of our, our classes in the first week, that Shame is that I am something wrong. Guilt is that I've done something wrong. So shame forces us to identify ourselves with what we've done. And we talked about the fact that this text is one of the answers to shame, that Jesus identified himself with what you've done so that you can be identified by his righteousness. You're not defined by your failures. You're defined by his success. And he identified himself with your failures so you don't have to. So Jesus literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set us free. This is what transpired here. It's painful. It's hard. But what does that look like? And what does that teach us about the faith of Jesus? That's what we're going to be addressing for the rest of this time. So we're going to look at different quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy, things from Scripture, of just looking at the story and experiencing the story. So in John chapter 13 to 17, Ella White says, Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them. But as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. You ever walking with somebody who's got a heavy burden and you just sense something's not okay? They kind of get quiet. Maybe you've been there. Jesus became strangely silent. He's been teaching, John 13, teaching them lessons, washing their feet, teaching them about how things are going to operate and that one of them is going to betray him. He does the Lord's Supper. John chapter 14, he's teaching them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and other things. John chapter 15, encouraging them. As he's left, they've, had, they've left the house at this stage, 
right? They've left the upper room. Jesus sees vines. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Abide in me and I in you. If the world hates me, they're going to hate you. John 16, again, bringing up the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 17, he's praying to the Father, pleading with him on behalf of his disciples. Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. Teaching, teaching. John 13 to 17 is this long, if you've got a red letter Bible, it's a gazillion red letters. All four chapters are full of, of the words of Jesus with little interludes from the disciples. Teaching, 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 teaching. And now he's strangely silent. He had often visited this spot as he gets to the garden for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as on this night of his last agony. Throughout his life on earth, he walked in the light of God's presence. This is the atmosphere. Jesus was continually in a, in a mindset of worship, if you will, always cognizant that God's presence was with him in whatever he did. He was always there. And when in conflict with men who are inspired by the very spirit of Satan, Jesus could say, he that has sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him, John 8, 29. But now he seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. Imagine how overwhelmingly unfamiliar this is for Jesus, always basking in the glory of God's presence, but now he feels shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. He was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to him. So great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he is tempted to fear that it will shut him out forever from the Father's love. Can you imagine? He's always lived in this, and he's tempted to believe right now that he has forever been shut out, not just from God's presence, even from the Father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He's already dying. As they approached the garden, the disciples had marked the change that came over their master. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. And as he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause. You ever seen somebody suffering? You know something's not right, and you don't even have the courage to ask them why. You feel so inept. You wouldn't have good words to give them anyway, and you just leave them to suffer alone? I have. Jesus was on the other end of that. His form swayed as if he were about to fall. Physically, he can't keep it together. Upon reaching the garden, the disciples looked anxiously for his usual place of retirement, that their master might rest. But every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud 
Jesus literally wails in this moment as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him or he would have fallen to the earth. Literally, his legs collapse from under him and the disciples have to catch him. Twice. Because the moment that he enters the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, the entire weight of the sin of the world is heaped upon his shoulders and it rocks him physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He is visibly distraught and shaken. And the disciples are seeing Jesus fall apart before them, and they don't know what to do about it. This guy is always calm, cool, and collected all the time. Two naked demoniacs come running at him in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus rebukes the demons, and in Luke's account, it says he was seated and clothed in his right mind. The disciples are cowering back in the boat trying to get out of there totally unfaced. When the waves are crashing over the boat in Matthew chapter 8, what's Jesus doing as the disciples are freaking out, crying, do you even care? He's sleeping. A demoniac stands up in a church service and says, what are we to do with you, Jesus? Have you come to torture us before the time? And Jesus rebukes the demon, and the man is in a normal condition. We could send shivers up your spine if you saw an event like that. Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected. In fact, the confidence of the disciples was based upon the confidence of Jesus. Nothing shakes this guy. Someone's sick, he can heal them. Someone's hungry, he can feed them. Something scary happens, he's unmoved. And now they are seeing a Jesus that they have never seen before. He's literally falling apart at the seams, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He's not sinning, but literally everything is given out all at the same time. He felt that by sin, he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony, he must not exert his divine power to escape. But could he? Yeah, wouldn't be a temptation if he couldn't do it. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. And as man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. Hitherto, he had been intercessor for others. Now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. Can you imagine when you give and give and give for everybody, anytime? And now is a moment where Jesus is just wishing that somebody would pray for me. And are they praying for him? No. The psychological agony is so intense that physiologically he begins to bleed through his pores. The life forces are literally being pressed out of Jesus. You know what the word Gethsemane means? It's the press. It's a place where they smashed oil out of olives. And in this moment, and in this place, 
the life forces are literally being pressed and crushed out of Jesus. And again, this is before a single hand is laid upon him, before a crown of thorns, before he's beaten with a staff or beaten with lashes. He's already dying. This goes back to Ty's question to the Arai students. If it's just the physical pain that Jesus went through that makes his death significant, why is his better or more important than somebody else's experience? Now we're starting to see what's different about his experience. No one else will bear the weight that he's bearing. Not even the wicked will bear that weight because he's bearing the weight for the entire world, not for his individual sin. Literally, Jesus goes from being the spotless lamb of glory to now experientially feeling what it is like to be the entire human race and to be the sole guilty party in the great controversy. Jesus is bearing the weight of the entire world as if he's the only guilty party for every sin that has ever been committed. It's heavy. And you and I, under these circumstances, we can check out. We can pick up our phone and run to Snapchat, run to Instagram, and check out and dissociate from our conviction. Jesus doesn't have that option. He has to stare down this gun barrel with nowhere to run. And it's literally killing him, and he's suffering alone. There's no one with him. And these thoughts are now asked in Desire of Ages. Well, what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men. In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you, Jesus. They're seeking to destroy you. One of your own disciples who's listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. And Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn any further from God as if that's really going to help. Then she says, the human heart longs for sympathy and suffering. Is that true? This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. In the supreme agony of his soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire to hear some words of comfort from those whom he had so often blessed and comforted and shielded in sorrow and distress. The one who had always words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony. And he longed to know that they were praying for him and for themselves. Were they? No. 
Literally, Jesus is longing for Peter, James, or John to just crawl across this cold gravel and lay a hand on his shoulder to say, Jesus, we're here. We care. They can't tell him it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And he gets nothing. Jesus is longing for human affection and sympathy this moment, and we gave him nothing. We did nothing for him. He's suffering alone. How dark seemed the malignity of sin. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he stood innocent before God. Guys, Jesus was strongly tempted to leave us in this moment because we don't care. If he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated this, he would be strengthened. Did they? So was he strengthened? No. And what's implied by this statement and Jesus' own words, that behold, my, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, what's implied here is that Jesus literally would have died in the garden and never even made it to the cross, were it not for the fact that there's an intervention. Jesus prays three times in this moment, Father, please. He's begging the Father to change his mind. If there's any other way, please. And then your face comes into the mind of Jesus. And this is what even gives him the intrinsic motivation to utter the next words. Nevertheless, if this is what it's going to take, not my will, but yours be done. We're told his humanity shrinks from this responsibility a second time, and he says, Father, please. But again, he's reminded of your fate if he doesn't do this, and says, nevertheless, if this is what it takes, I'll do it. A third time, Father, please. Nevertheless, if this is what has to happen, I'll do it. The cup that he's wrestling with here, Father, let this cup pass from me, is the same cup that's mentioned in the three angels' messages. It's the cup of God's unmingled wrath. And Jesus is drinking this thing to the dregs, guys. He is taking in the entirety of the wrath of God. And the white says this. She says he was realizing his father's frown. Can you imagine? This is my son in whom I am well pleased at the baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him at the Mount of Transfiguration. And in this moment, Jesus is enduring the frown of God. She says he had taken the cup of suffering from the lips of guilty man and proposed to drink it himself and in its place give to man the cup of blessing. The wrath that would have fallen upon man was now falling upon Christ. And it was here that this mysterious cup trembles in his hand. The sins of a lost world were upon him and overwhelming him. 
Jesus has never felt guilt. He has literally never felt shame. He's never even been convicted of a sin he's committed because he's never committed one. So imagine going from being perfectly spotless and guiltless to now standing before the bar of God as if you are the only guilty party in the entire great controversy. You know what shame feels like. You know what guilt feels like. He doesn't. It is overwhelmingly unfamiliar to the nature of Jesus to be experiencing this. In consequence of sin, which rent his heart, uh, sorry, the sins of a lost world were upon him and overwhelming him. It was, as, again, a sense of his father's frown. In consequence of sin, which rent his heart with such piercing agony, and forced from his brow great drops of blood, which rolling down from his pale cheeks fell to the ground, moistening the earth. Guys, literally, the unmingled wrath of God is being poured out upon God. It's a seeming contradiction in terms. But you are what's on his mind. And this is what leads him to say, nevertheless. And Ellen White tells us that after that third moment of prayer and surrender, she says his decision is made and he will save man at any cost to himself. Doesn't matter how much this is going to hurt. It doesn't matter how difficult this is, how much my body does not want to go through this. This train will not stop. Jesus is not allowing not going forward to be an option. Whatever these people deserve, whatever this is going to cost, no matter how messy and nasty it gets, lay it on me, Jesus says. Because he believes that you're worth it. But he's not the only one who's suffering in this moment. Back to Desire of Ages. God suffered with his son. And there was silence in heaven in this moment. Heaven is not a place that's known for being silent. Read the book of Revelation. But in this moment, there is not a sound to be heard. All of them with bated breath are watching their champion endure the unmingled wrath of God with no help and no assistance. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic hosts? They are beside themselves at what they're watching. As in silent grief, they had to watch the Father separate His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son. They would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. If we saw what they saw, we would not do what we do. They know the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, and they are beside themselves watching God the Father separate His beams of light, love, and glory from Jesus. And they are recognizing what sin is and what it costs. And if we saw that, we wouldn't keep doing what we're doing. 
God then has to send an angel from the right hand of the throne down to planet Earth to do for Jesus what we did not do. It's alluded to in Luke's Gospel, and it's expounded upon in Desire of Ages in the chapter on Gethsemane, and it's this heartbreaking narrative. Because what she literally says is that this angel comes down to earth to the garden, and he's literally cradling the head of Jesus in his bosom. And he's speaking tender words of encouragement to him, reminding him of the promises of God. Jesus, you are going to see the labor of your soul and be satisfied. It's going to be worth it. Do you remember at the baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Keep going, Jesus. It's still true. This is the only reason I believe that Jesus does not die in that garden. Because Ellen White says that if Jesus could just know that the disciples understood and appreciated what he was going through, he could be strengthened. They didn't. So God sends an angel from heaven to let him know how much he appreciates what he's going through. And this is what strengthens Jesus to go forward. There are multiple things that happen to Jesus in his life and in the closing scenes that lead to him being able to go through the cross. And it's an important study. I don't have time to go into that. But the things and the people that God uses to encourage Jesus will amaze you. It will amaze you. This is just one of them. So again, what's implied is that Jesus never would have made it out of that garden had this event not taken place. And one of the disciples opens their eyes. I think it's John. But one of the disciples opens their eyes. No, it's got to be well, Luke wasn't there, obviously, because he wrote this after the fact. He's a convert. But um, regardless, the disciples, as Jesus is being ministered to by this angel, they open their eyes and look across the courtyard, and what they see is this angel cradling and cuddling Jesus and pointing into heaven. Jesus gets up at this stage, and he goes down to the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane to greet the other eight disciples. Three were with him, Peter, James, and John. The other eight were at the gate because Judas had already left. And as he gets to the gate of the garden, Judas is there with a brute group of guards with implements that they are not going to need for Jesus. He's a man of peace. And Judas comes up to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. And as Jesus is feeling the stab of heartbreak and betrayal, in that moment of offense, Jesus musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Friend. Some of us in this room right now have people in our lives that we cannot refer to as friend because what they did was too much they went too far, and I just can't. In His strength, you can. Now, we are not saying you need to go back to abusive circumstances, that you're not to have boundaries, that you are supposed to trust this person again. We're not saying that, but here's what we are saying. The disposition of your heart can change towards this person. And the cancer of unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment need not plague you a moment longer. That's the point.
Then Peter has a brilliant idea, and he grabs a sword and hacks Malchus' ear off, thinking he's doing Jesus a favor. And Jesus tells him, put your sword in its place, Peter. They aren't taking my life. I'm giving myself for them. Because the kingdom of heaven is not advanced by taking. The spirit of prophecy tells us the glory of God to give. I don't need your violence to advance my kingdom. And it's very unfortunate that we have brethren in our own movement who think they're doing Jesus favors by hacking people's ear off with their violent arguments. And Jesus would tell them the exact same thing. Put your sword in its place. Your violence has no place here. This battle is won by giving, not by taking, not by speaking louder and harsh, brash arguments. It's in humility, in the giving of oneself for another. Then Jesus is given this sham of a trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. It's a mockery of justice. It's an abomination. We're also told that during this time of trial, when he's being brought to house to house and to ruler and to ruler, that Isaiah 52 tells us that in this moment, Jesus is literally beaten beyond the point of physical recognition. Jesus did endure severe amounts of physical violence. It was no joke. He's flogged twice. One flogging overdone could kill a brother. This man is flogged twice. And he's beaten. And he's dehydrated. And he's exhausted. He hasn't slept. He's going through severe physical hardship in this moment. You literally cannot recognize who he is when they're done with him. It's that bad. But then he's brought before the Jews. And what do they have to say about the very Messiah that they're longing to come and save them? We will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar and give us Barabbas. And we think to ourselves, what savages, what monsters to say such a thing? But before we're too hard on the Jews, we need to come to her face to face with the fact that every time that you and I choose our choice sins over Jesus, we're saying the exact same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. I have no king but Caesar. And give me Barabbas. I'm no better than them. And neither are you. All of us, were it not for the grace of God, deserve to die because of our sins. But we have the grace of God. Amen? Amen. And then comes the next, and I think one of the most radical, impactful moments of Jesus and His vulnerability on earth. A lot of lessons in this that I didn't see for a long time. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24 that if anyone desires to come after me, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You're familiar with this text, yeah? It dawned on me a couple years ago. Yeah, but what did it look like when he took up his? Because he's asking us to follow him. Well, in John chapter 19 and verse 17, says, and he, meaning Jesus, bearing his own cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. 
But in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32, it says, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Which leads to a very important question. Does the Bible contradict itself, yes or no? No. no. These are not statements of contradiction. They're statements of chronology. One happens, and then the other happens. See if we can get through this. As Jesus passed the gate of Pilate's court, the cross which had been prepared for Barabbas was placed upon his bruised and bleeding shoulders. Two companions of Barabbas were to suffer death at the same time with Jesus, and upon them also crosses were placed. But the Savior's burden was too heavy for him in his weak and suffering condition. Since the Passover supper with his disciples, he had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of the betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had been taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate. From Pilate he had been sent to Herod, then sent again to Pilate. From insult to renewed insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge, all that night there had been scene after scene of a character to try the soul of man to the uttermost. But Christ had not failed. Not once Jesus had spoken no word but that tended to glorify God. All throughout the disgraceful farce of a trial, he had borne himself with firmness and dignity. But when after the second scourging, the cross was laid upon him, human nature could bear no more, and he fell fainting beneath the burden. The crowd that followed the Savior saw his weak and staggering steps, but they manifested no compassion. They taunted and reviled him because he could not carry the heavy cross. Again, the burden was laid upon him, and again he falls, fainting to the ground. And his persecutors saw that it was impossible for him to carry this burden any further. And they were puzzled to find anyone who would bear the humiliating load. The Jews themselves could not do this because the defilement would prevent them from keeping the Passover. None, even of the mob that followed him, would stoop to bear the cross. And this is when Simon enters the equation. And we're told that Simon bearing that cross eventually leads to his own conversion. It was a blessing to him. But the question was, if Jesus is telling us to take up our cross and follow him, what's it going to look like? You're going to collapse. It's going to be too much and you're not going to be able to bear it. And that's the point, guys. Jesus makes a fool of himself collapsing under the weight of his cross to show me that I'm not a loser when I collapse under the weight of mine. It's never a weight that we were supposed to bear ourselves. And that's the point. That's the whole point of the gospel. Someone else has to bear that weight for us because we can't. It'll crush us and it will collapse. So if you've had to go through the agonizing and humiliating effort to carry the cross that you've been given, only to collapse under its load, you have a Savior who understands. And you're not a loser. 
We have to come face to face with the reality that we can't bear the cross that we've been given. And we're going to need help from an outside source. And Jesus, again, humiliates himself to give us that example. But then Jesus is nailed to this demonic torture device. It's heaved up in the air and slammed into the rock, the hole in the rock that's prepared for it. And, I mean, Jesus literally is being held up by nails in his human flesh through sensitive areas of the body. And as that cross is slammed into the ground, every nerve and sinew of Jesus' body is now filled with fire. And yet we're told this strange line from Desire of Ages that his physical pain was quote-unquote hardly felt in comparison with the spiritual, emotional, and psychological agony that Jesus is going through in this moment. Hardly felt. Then all this unbelief is heaped into the face of Jesus. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you, Jesus. Even people who are crucified with him, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. An irony of ironies, it's precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that he's not coming down from that cross. And he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. And then this voice of sophistry returns again. Jesus, what are you doing? These people clearly do not appreciate you. You are wasting your time, bro. Just leave. And could he? Yeah. He could leave us. But he chooses not to. And then the only constant that Jesus has had for 33 and a half years, the presence and the approval of his Father is now gone. In the experiential mind of Jesus, it literally is as, is as if the Father doesn't even exist. He's nowhere to be found when he needs him the most. Where are you? And then words come out of the mouth of Jesus that you would never expect to hear from the mouth of God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? This is hard. I want to get into the faith of Jesus more here because this is a direct quote from Psalm 22. Turn there. Psalm 22. As Jesus opens his mouth here and shares the thoughts that are running through his mind as he's enduring the deafening silence of God, the psalm begins by saying, my, um, 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. And in the night seasons, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you, were not ashamed. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. 
They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths, and like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I'm so emaciated. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. He literally is pleading with God to help him, to hear him, to respond to his needs. And it seems like nothing's happening. All Jesus recites is Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1 in his agony. But that's not the only verse that's in his mind as he's processing what's happening to him. And there's a transition here at the end of verse 21 where it says, You have answered me. You've answered me. And I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. He does hear. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, and I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nation shall worship before you. Jesus says in John 12, that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto myself. It's alluded to here. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations and all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall worship before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Then it says, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. The psalm begins with seeming defeat. But as he airs his thoughts and wrestles through it, he comes to understand that God is hearing me. God has heard me and he has delivered me. And the posterity that will come through this suffering will grow. And the surrounding nations will know and worship before you. This is what Jesus means in John 12, 32, that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. But the darkness that Jesus is experiencing in his closing hours is eclipsing what he stated in John 12, 32. It's so dark and so bad that he's thinking that sin is so heinous in the sight of God that I am cut off, that there is no hope for me. 
And the only thing Jesus can do in this moment is to cling to the love of God that was heretofore revealed to him and the promises that God had given him heretofore. And this is the only thing that kept Jesus. This is the faith of Jesus resting in the Father's love even when he can't feel it. Resting in the promises of God even when he doesn't see them and persevering to the end to come what may. The faith of Jesus displayed on the cross. He had to persevere through faith. So Jesus didn't just remember Psalm 22 and verse 1 in case things got nasty and was tempted to doubt that God wasn't with him. Again, his whole life was filled with the reality of God's presence. He had memorized the whole chapter. And so when Jesus claims the first part in verse 1, where it seems like defeat, he's also claiming the end of the chapter, which ends in victory. What looks like defeat, Jesus is actually declaring victory. He's claiming the entire chapter. The faith of Jesus perseveres through this darkness and rests in the Father's love, even when he can't feel it. You ever wonder why it is that it looks like midnight, even though it's noonday at the cross? We're told in Desire of Ages, page 753, in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness His pavilion and conceals His glory from human eyes. This is Psalm 18, I believe. God and His holy angels were beside the cross. Literally, heaven is empty at this stage of God and the angels, and they are all crowding around their champions supporting Him. But this is such an important point. Does Jesus know that? No. Jesus is fully convinced that He is left to His own. God is not hearing and is nowhere to be found. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, feels in this moment that the Father is the farthest from Him that He has been for 33 and a half years. You know what the ironic thing is? The Father is actually the closest to Him that He's been in 33 and a half years. And you know what that tells me? That those times when I feel that God is nowhere to be found, that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it true. Just because I can't feel it does not mean that God is not there and that God does not care. We see that in the story of Jesus. The Father was with His Son, yet His presence was not revealed. And had His glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. It was the mercy of God that spares these people who are crucifying His Son. God is pouring out His wrath that these people deserve upon His Son and showing mercy to these people who don't deserve it. Mercy and justice kiss each other at Calvary. God is showing them mercy. Why? So that even they can have a chance to respond to the faith of Jesus. The love of God on display, even at the cross, of not giving the wicked what they deserve, but instead choosing to give His Son what they deserve so that they could respond to the faith of Jesus. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with Him. You know why? Because there's times when you and I tread the winepress alone, and there's no one with us. 
seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus went through this to empower you to come boldly when you go through it. This is why. But there's one thing that keeps Jesus going through all of this madness. You know what it is? It's you. It's you. Jesus cannot bear the thought of losing you. It is unthinkable to him. We're told in the spirit of prophecy that heaven was not a place to be desired while we were lost. Jesus would rather take the risk of ceasing to exist for eternity to even give you a chance to be saved than to stay where he was with his father and for you to not have a chance to be saved. This is what we're told. It is unthinkable to him. You being lost is not an option. And he will exercise every effort that is necessary for that to happen. He will save man at any cost to himself. And we're told in this moment, as Jesus is enduring this agony, that he cannot see through the portals of the tomb. Jesus is fully convinced in his own mind in this moment that when he breathes his last breath, he will never live again. He will never see the Father again. And even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, he's not going to be there to see it, guys. This is what's in the mind of Jesus. And this is why it says in John chapter 13 and verse 1, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved you to the end. To the very end of himself, because Jesus is convinced that when I close my eyes, it literally is the end for him. He gave so much that he's going to cease existing so that you can have a chance to exist and you won't even get to see the fruit of his labor. Jesus literally loved you. Agape is the word that's used there. Perfect, other-centered love. Jesus loved you to the end. Amid the world's awful darkness... Desire of Ages says, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given to him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. And by faith, Jesus rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was finally withdrawn. And by faith, Christ was victor. It is finished. And then Jesus, after he has these interactions with the disciples, he ascends into heaven. And he asks the, well, as Jesus gets into heaven, it's the grandest party you have ever seen in your life. 
The angels erupt in praise in this moment. And Jesus literally looks at the angels and says, no, no. He refuses their worship and he presses into the presence of the Father. And he has one question. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Was it enough? Jesus could care less about their worship. The only thing that's on his mind was, did it work? Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? And the Father says, yes. And we're told in that moment, the Father embraces his Son for the first time in 33 and a half years. Yes. We're so proud of you. Yes. We're told this in the Spirit of Prophecy. Volume 3, page 202. Jesus received the, he, re, he refused to receive the homage of his people until he knew that his sacrifice had been accepted by the Father and until he received the assurance from God himself that this atonement for the sins of his people had been full and ample and that through his blood they might gain eternal life. Jesus immediately ascends to heaven and presents himself before the throne of God, showing the marks of shame and cruelty upon his brow, his hands, and his feet, but he refused to receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe, and he also refused the adoration of the angels as he had refused the homage of Mary until the Father signified that his offering was accepted. Guys, you were always on the mind of Jesus. Always. There's never a time when he's not thinking about you. You're everything that he has ever been looking for. And so even though Jesus, his, his love tank is super empty at this stage, he's been unappreciated and disrespected for 33 and a half long, heinous, awful years. You better believe he would like to receive worship in that moment. But you are so present in his mind and so much in the forefront of his mind, he won't take their worship. He refuses it until he has this assurance that you and I can be with him where he is. And this is why it says in Revelation chapter 12 that the heavens should rejoice, but woe to the earth. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and say hallelujah this morning. And they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And you know why? Because they realized that the lives that they were living lead to death. And they found something better in the faith of Jesus. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. This is in direct response to the cross event, Revelation 12. But this wasn't just something that was a crowning victory for you and for me. This victory, we're told, made heaven, the angels, and all the redeemed even more secure. It's the article I quoted earlier, Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. It's called, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ? She literally says the death of Jesus actually guards the angels from future apostasy and makes even them more secure. 
Heaven and the unfallen worlds have made up their minds regarding their view of the love and the character of God. This is why Satan has cast down all of his arguments lost access in heaven when they saw what he did to Jesus. There is no sympathy there. The unfortunate thing is there's still sympathy in here. So now the case has been moved to our planet and to each individual human heart. The question is, what decision are we going to make with that? In whose case are we going to believe? That's the real question. So if you've been wondering if God can accept you today, Calvary says yes. Yes and amen. Ephesians 1 tells us that you are accepted in the beloved. Yes, he accepts you. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he knows your darkness and your depravity. And it doesn't matter because the grace of God is much deeper, much broader, and much stronger than your brokenness, than your inherited and cultivated tendencies. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The cross of Christ is like this divine magnet of grace. John 12, 32 again, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. But that word peoples is actually supplied. It's much bigger than that. That when Jesus is lifted up, all are literally drawn to him. The unfallen angels, the unfallen worlds, the entire universe is drawn as they've seen this sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of humanity. There's another thought I have on one of Jesus' closing moments here. He prays that the Father would forgive us because we don't know what we're doing. But you need to think through what just happened here. Jesus is praying to his Father, whom he's tempted to believe has abandoned him and isn't answering his own prayers. And yet Jesus is pleading for the Father to help you and help me. Guys, if that's not the faith of Jesus, what is? He is so rooted in an understanding of the Father's love for the lost, that even when he feels that God isn't hearing my prayers, he doesn't stop praying. And he doesn't stop pleading for you. The faith of Jesus on display. Ellen White talks about that prayer. She says, that prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced the world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live, from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God, and to all forgiveness is freely offered. Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. This also shows us that when God's special people at the end of time have received the faith of Jesus, that their focus is going to be outward as well. Selfishness will not be their motivating factor. Jesus helped the thief. He helped his mother and he prayed for the lost so that same spirit can be given to you and to me to cause us to look outward in our crisis and not inward. This is what receiving the faith of Jesus is supposed to look like. But then we're told in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, why all this happened. He shall see the travail or the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What? Before Jesus suffers, he looks ahead at what he's going to have to go through, and he's satisfied with that. As Jesus is suffering, he's satisfied. And as he looks back upon what he just went through, he's still satisfied. Why? Because by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. In short, 
You're justified and He's satisfied. You're justified by His faith and He's satisfied. Jesus went through all of this because He saw in you a pearl of great price. He saw a value in you that you don't even see in yourself. And He's asking you to respond with a reciprocating faith. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And now we see why. It's amazing. For it's the power of God what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Jesus is overcoming faith and pursuing faith in us to faith, our reciprocating faith in Him. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But in Habakkuk, in the original language, it actually reads, the just shall live by His faith, by the faith of Jesus. So we find a faith in Jesus by first encountering the faith of Jesus, from His faith to our faith. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. And the King James knocks us out of the park when it says that um, the faith of Jesus in multiple texts in the New Testament and not faith in Jesus. They get distorted in other translations. Who loved him and gave, you know, loved us and gave himself for us and so forth. So, um, so the two bookends then, the three angels' messages, are the everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus. Both of them are talking about the same thing. A suffering Messiah who perseveres through his faith and who gives that faith to his people, which will propel them to preach the gospel to the whole world. And we can't lose sight of that, right? This is what contextualizes the entire message, okay? Um, so, somebody go to Revelation chapter 14 and read verse 12. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the commandments are no more yours than the faith of Jesus is yours. We're receiving both of them from Him. Amen. Yeah? Galatians 2.16 says that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified again by the faith of Jesus and not by the works of the law, for the works of the law shall, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Right? Galatians 3.22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Right? I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live but Jesus Christ now lives through me, right? This is the, the promise that we're given. Let me try to find something here real quick. And the life which I now live, continuing in Galatians 2.20, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so we now live by the faith of Jesus, Paul is saying, and he's quoting from Habakkuk. That, that was the verse, by the way, that won Martin Luther, right? The just shall be saved, or the just shall live by faith. It's by the faith of Jesus. So the only way people can be viewed as having kept the commandments in the past or as being capable of keeping them in the present or the future is because they have first encountered the faith of Jesus. Only his sufferings and death can declare and make one righteous. And we talked about that in the first angel's message, right? Listen to this from Ella White. 
Many who profess to be Christians become excited over worldly enterprises, and their interest is awakened for new and exciting amusements, while they are cold-hearted and appear as if frozen in the cause of God. Here is a theme, poor formalists, which is of sufficient importance to excite you. Eternal interests are here involved. Upon this theme, the theme of the cross, it is sin to be calm and unimpassioned. The scenes of Calvary call for the deepest emotion, and upon this subject, you will be excusable if you manifest enthusiasm. You should be. You're sinning if you're not, she says. You can get excited about the gospel. Okay? Don't feel like, ah, I don't want to look like one of those people. Like, literally, you can lose your mind over the gospel. You're given full license from the prophet of God. Okay? All right. Can I just go ahead and finish out what we have, and we'll just end early for the day period? Can we do that instead of taking a break? It's just going to get kind of weird if we do that. So let's just persevere like the saints at the end of time, and I'll let you go early. Okay? This is Ellen White. This is actually the last letter we have from her uh, that she wrote to somebody that we have access to. Listen to this. Speaking to a discouraged Christian. The Lord has given me a message for you, and not for you only, but also for other faithful souls who are troubled by doubts and fears regarding their acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever had any doubts or fears over whether Jesus could accept you? Here's what she says. His word to you is, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I had called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You desire to please the Lord, and you can do this how? By believing His promises. You want to make God happy? Believe what He says about you. Amen. That He loves you. That He accepts you. That He has no desire to cast you from His presence. That He wants to be with you. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience, and He bids you, be still and know that I am God. You've had a time of unrest, but Jesus says to you, come unto me and I will give you rest. The joy of Christ in the soul is worth everything, and then are they glad because they're privileged to rest in the arms of everlasting love. Isn't that beautiful? There's another letter she wrote to a discouraged Christian. By the way, did Ellen White know anything about being discouraged as a Christian and being afraid of not being good enough? Read the first volume of the testimonies. Read her testimony. It's, uh, she went through this, and she dealt with people so tenderly um, who dealt with this, which is what's so infuriating to me when people use Ellen White quotes that make people lose their assurance of salvation or make them feel like God says they're not good enough because she, she totally understands what this is like and would never do that, let alone the fact the Spirit of God doesn't do that and she's a prophet. All right, here's another letter of encouragement. The message from God to me for you is, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Man, isn't that a great message from the Lord? If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. The promise that he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out. She says, it, by the way, how many people here have nothing to offer God? Yeah, we're starting to realize the faith I live by 111. Good for you. Well, guess what? If you come into the presence of Jesus with this one promise or into the Father's presence with this one promise, you're not going to be turned away. It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. 
Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out. Present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. Now you can go. You can't leave before you hear that. Literally, if you have nothing to offer Jesus but this one promise, when you claim that promise that he who comes unto me I will no wise cast out, in that moment you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. Is God looking for reasons to get you in or not? Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about the faith of Jesus. Ella White says, The faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning Savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. You know what verse she's quoting there? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then she says, and faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply, fully, and entirely is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Listen to Wagner. Oh, this is boss level stuff. He says, God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and the most depraved if they are only willing and believe his word. The faith of Jesus, not just seeing you for what you are, but for what he can make of you. That's no longer seeing men according to the flesh, if Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but for what God can make of them. I want to close with this idea of what happens when people reject this most precious message and how serious it is when we do so in the face of God's extraordinary efforts to save us from our sins. This is another quote from Wagner in the Everlasting Covenant. This thing is legitimate dynamite. He says, And so it went on throughout the plague, uh, the plague speaking of Egypt. All the steps in each case are not recorded, but we see that it was the long-suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. The same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made many others bitter against him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination in the hearts of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. And then listen to this as he drops the shoe. The judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has in hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of his mercy. That everyone who ends up lost at the end of the day, will do so after having had a revelation of God's mercy. And we see the revelation of God's mercy so clearly in the three angels' messages. And the revelation of His mercy in the third angel's message is repeated again in Revelation 18's loud cry to the world. The last message of mercy. And when I read this, it absolutely rocked me. Because what Jesus is basically saying here is that if anyone's going to be lost at the end of the day by taking the road to perdition, they're going to have to step over my dead body to get there. If anybody's going to be lost and take that road to perdition, they're going to have to trip over my dead body to get there. Maybe you've heard it said that I'm not going to go down without a fight. God's not going to let you go down without a fight. Every soul on this earth is being pursued. Jesus has been tenaciously pursuing the lost throughout salvation history, and it's this beautiful message um, that, that people need to hear before the door of mercy closes. 
And so again, having loved his own who are in the world, he loves them to the end. So this, this is a privilege to be able to preach this to the world. I remember Matt Parra, when I went through the Arise program, he asked this question, why is it that God would choose to believe in people that he knows are not going to respond? You ever thought about that? Why would he choose to believe in people who aren't going to respond to the gospel? And then Matt made this statement that absolutely wrecked me. He said, what God knows doesn't change who he is. And love believes all things. It hopes all things and it endures all things. He can't turn that off. It's just the way that he does life. God will literally believe in people until they cease to exist. And then he will miss them throughout eternity. So we have a charge to preach this message to the world. And how they respond to that message is none of your business. Don't worry about that. Your job is to share it. Let God and then work through the consequences. Yeah? So the faith of Jesus that will be received by his people in Revelation 14, 12 is a faith that pierces through any darkness or doubt and that rests in his Father's love. And it's one that sees the value in people that have been purchased. We will see people for what God can make of them, not for what they currently are. Yeah? All right. Um, I think that's... Let me double-check something here. So kind of our closing charge for the three angels' messages. Preach the everlasting gospel. Preach the message of the pre-Avent judgment. Preach the Sabbath. Preach the fallacy of Babylon's gospel. Preach the validity of God's law. Preach the righteousness of Christ, which makes that law reality in the believer's life. And preach the faith of Jesus that is our only hope. This is my charge to you as mission-minded Seventh-day Adventist Christians, people going through a mission school. Take this thing and do something with it. Shake up the world, will you? This is a message that literally can meet the needs of everyone in this world today. But what are we going to do with it? Yeah? I'm going to close with an appeal. Even if you're at a mission school, people need to respond to appeals, and you don't talk about stuff like this and not do it. I'm going to close with the story of my friends Chuck and Millie. I was Bible working at a church in Tennessee, I was like an elder and kind of serving as like an unofficial associate pastor and um, while working in academy in the mornings. And this guy was a retired conference president from Northern New England Conference or Southern New England Conference. I forget. I think it's somewhere over here in this general area. His name's Chuck Case. He's written some children's books. If you've read them, Charles Case or Chuck Case. And anyway, Chuck was a retired conference president, still is a retired conference president. Uh, he's still with us. And he tells a story, he preached a sermon while I was at that church in Tennessee called A Love Relationship with Jesus. I said, preach it, Chuck. So he tells a story when he's courting his wife. They're at La Sierra a million years ago, a um, long, long time ago. They're at La Sierra, and she's studying nursing. He's studying to be a pastor because that's what you do when you're Adventist, right? Ladies become nurses, guys become pastors or missionaries or something. And so he's going through the studies, and he's courting this girl, and he finally musters the guts. And in the car, he tells her, Millie, I love you. You know what she says? Well, I don't love you. Guns him down, boy. Double barrel shotgun. But like Isaiah chapter 42, he would not fail nor be discouraged. Now, fellas, there's a fine line here that I don't know how to explain, because <laughs> there's this like... You know, it's romantic when she says, yeah, and comes around, but it's creepy if she doesn't. So it's creepy until she comes around. But do you know if it's, I don't know. I don't know that line. I don't know how this works. 
Uh, if I figure it out, I'll let you know. If you figure it out, help a brother out. I don't know how this works. <laughs> Ladies, just make up your mind and, and what thou doest, do quickly. It would make our lives a lot easier because you're just like, oh, are they? Are they not? I think they are, but no, they're not. But I think they really are. They're just saying they're not because they're scared of commitment or they're, ah. So anyway, Chuck, Chuck just keeps loving this girl. The thing is, she keeps going on dates with him. They keep going out. And so some time goes by. I don't know how long it was. He didn't say, or if he did, I forgot. Could be the latter. Who knows? And he goes to pick her up in the lobby of the dormitory. The dormitory is like connected to the hospital at this stage. So all the nurses would just live there and go straight to work. It's super easy. And so she says, Chuck, we need to talk. And like his whole stomach sank. Like, oh, snap. Blood pressure just like plummets, you know, and he passed out. And she takes him into the side room in the, uh, in the dormitory, like lobby area. And she wraps her arms around him and she says, Chuck, I love you. I love you. And then she says, what are you going to do with my love? And you know what he said? Marry it. <laughs> and they've been married for over 60 years doing the Lord's work. He was a pastor, I think, and then a conference president. She was teaching the nursing program at one of our colleges. And here's the point. You guys have seen that God loves you. Have you seen that this week in the Three Angels messages? What are you going to do about it? I sure hope so. What are you going to do with his love? That's the question. How are you going to let this define the way that you do life? And what decisions are you going to make in response to this revelation? And that's the same appeal that you need to be making to the people that you're sharing the three angels' messages with. Have you seen that God loves you? Yes. What are you going to do with his love? What decision are you going to make as a result of what you have learned? Because the answer to that question is the question. If all you say is, hey, you remember we had that class? I was going to say at Arise. This isn't Arise. This is Core. Uh, it's where I went. Um, you remember that class that we had about the Three Angels messages? That was nice. That was nice. I even cried a little bit. Like, is, is that how you're going to respond to this? Or are you really going to allow this thing to transform your life? Because it's meant to transform your life, not just make you feel good Thursday morning, October 21st. It's Grandma Shirley's birthday. I need to call her today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hopefully my phone reminds me of that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a horrible way to interrupt an appeal. Sorry. But it's just like, <laughs> we talked about grandmas, right? Like, even old ladies get lonely. You got to call every once in a while. Like, I know. That's right. Uh, so anyway, I want to invite you guys to pray with me. And I want to give you some time to respond to what you've been hearing over the course of this week. And to not just have this be a nice class that you went through, and let's move on to the next one. This should do something. The Three Angels' messages are supposed to radically change the world and the people who hear it. I really am praying that God will do that for all of us, including myself. This has been a blessed experience for me too. But what are we going to do about it? Yeah? God in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, for revealing the how, the why, and the what of, of the end time circumstances. But God, we don't just want to have this be another avenue experience that that was nice and we move on with our lives and we don't really make a deep and abiding commitment. I want to pray first and foremost today and give an invitation. If, if some of us are seeing a picture of God that we have never seen before, and we're realizing even more now than before we committed to come to this school, that I want to genuinely give my heart and my life to this type of a God. 
that I want to forsake the things that pull me away from you, and I want to serve you wholeheartedly. If that's you, just raise your hand to heaven right now. Lord Jesus, I want you to have all of me. My hand is raised. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive our sins, that you would cover them with the blood of Jesus. And I pray that you would send the promised spirit to do a work in our lives that we confess we cannot do for ourselves. When men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And in encountering the three angels' messages, Lord, we recognize that we are and have nothing. But we're so thankful for the fact that you view us as everything. I pray, O oh God, that you would deepen our commitment and our consecration, that you would draw us closer to yourself. And I just want to leave a brief moment of silence here for us to share whatever's on our heart with you. You can put your hands down. Lord, as we give you this space, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would hear us as we give our hearts to you. And that time begins now. Lord, we're so thankful for the faith of Jesus, that you saw something in us that we don't even see in ourselves, and you're treating us as if that's already true. And Lord, that awakens the desire in our own hearts to live a life that would honor such a belief. And so we rededicate ourselves to you right now, asking you to mold and shape us into the people of God that you need us to be, and that our neighbors and our family and the world needs us to be. You said, youth rightly trained, here am I, send me. We thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.